This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Welcome back to A Complete History of Manchester United. I'm your host, Wayne Barton, author and producer of Manchester United Books and Films. Joined, as always, by the legendary football writer, Paddy Barclay, author of the definitive biography of Sir Matt Busby. And if you are watching this podcast or listening back to it, you should have a copy of that book to read along while whilst doing so. And have one of mine... Once you've put my biography uh, <laughs> down as well. Uh, if you're watching the video, please give it a like and subscribe. Uh, join in on the conversation in the comment section as well. If you're listening back uh, to the audio pod- uh, podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on. Uh, 1996, D6, 67. We glossed over um, what happened in the events of the summer of 1966, so we don't need to recount those. <laughs> anymore um but there is a big change at the start of this season um united looking to push on and, and win the title again after you know mm-hmm. fairly disappointing climax to the the previous season after you know it, it seemed to start so well with you know especially with george best um in scintillating form in in yeah. lisbon uh the big change actually there were well, there a couple of big changes one in the wing positions and, and one in goal. The first one that we should really talk about, um, Paddy, is Alex Stepney, mm. um, who actually at the start of the season moved to Chelsea, £50,000, which was a massive fee for a goalkeeper. Um, Tommy Docherty was the manager there, obviously wanted to play him and Peter Benetti in alternate weeks, which sounds like a Tommy Docherty thing to do, um, mm. change your goalkeeper every week. Um, but then... Um, Benetti was a, a fan favourite at Chelsea, wasn't he? And the, the problem yes. was Chelsea chairman yeah. died. That's right. And, and the new one, uh, a, a guy called Charles Pratt, took over. And he, uh, you know, like most people at Chelsea, was a Benetti fan and uh, wouldn't let... In fact, Tommy did want to sell Benetti and replace him with Stepney. I think that was one of Tommy's ruses, yeah. this alternating thing. Uh, which usually not, not like Tommy to have a ruse. No, <laughs> absolutely. It's like the joint management thing. You know, one of them <laughs> goes. And um, but yes, uh, 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 you know, Stepney 
uh, had played for Millwall. He was the goalkeeper of the England under-23s, and already it was known that he was going to be an outstanding goalkeeper, uh, hence the fee. Um, and um, it was uh, 50,000, but Tommy realised that he wasn't going to win this battle with the, with the board uh, and that he'd have to sell... Uh, sell Stepney. Well, well, Busby was already very much on the case. One day, Stepney, wondering what on earth he'd done in going to Chelsea, um, was told to come into the uh, to the ground at Stamford Bridge, whereupon Tommy bundled him into a car and took him to a hotel near Euston Station. Uh, and he was all the way there. He was saying, what, 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 what are we going for? Anyway, his question was answered when they walked through the doors and there were um, Jimmy Murphy and Matt Busby. So it was pretty obvious what was going to happen. The Busby outlet said, listen, son, would you like to come and play alongside Law, Best, Charlton, Creran, Styles, et al. And, uh, it, you know, his attitude was more or less, where do I sign? And um, so, you know, it was easily done. However, the fee was for the third time Busby had to pay a world record fee for a goalkeeper. He had to pay 55, so Chelsea uh, did at least produce a profit for Chelsea. Um, and, uh, and, and Stepney went. But there, there is a funny story next to this because Stepney was told, you know, go home, pack a bag, um, confirm it. You know, can you know tell your wife that you're going to have to move? I'm afraid, and um, and go back with Matt and Jimmy in the morning, on the, on such and such a ten thirty or whatever it was, back to Manchester. Um, anyway, um, uh, unfortunately for Alex's wife, his first wife had been speaking to the Daily Express. <laughs> And the, of course, it wasn't known that the transfer would go through. But uh, he said, what do you feel about? It? And she said, well, I'm not sure that I want to go and live in Coronation Street. So, and it, it, when Matt and uh, Jimmy and, and Alex sit down in the compartment, uh, the, Matt's picked up all the papers. He's got them under his arm. He pulls out the Daily Express. Um, I don't want to go to Coronation Street, says Mrs. Stepney. So Matt hands it over and says, what's this about, son? And uh, <laughs> it, it was all smoothed out. She Once she went up and she realised that Sale, the tree-lined suburb, only three miles from, uh, from Old Trafford, or less, a couple of miles from Old Trafford, was not exactly Coronation Street. She was quite happy and lived there very, for many, many years, quite <laughs> happily. So, um, but it was quite... It, it could, Stephanie could not believe his eyes when he saw the headline, but um, yeah, uh, it instantly made a, made a difference. As you, as we mentioned in previous episodes, United had other goalkeepers who were not deemed up to scratch, including the title winner from '65, um, Pat Dunn, uh, who had a nightmare. United actually went into the League Cup this year, but they got absolutely battered at Blackpool. And yeah. Pat Dunn let in five. So that gave Matt the perfect excuse to get um, Stepney in straight away. And my God, what an effect he had. It was a bit like 
the effect Cantona was to have many, many years later on the attack, yeah. Stepney had the same effect on the defence. Suddenly they were letting in less than one goal a game. Before that, they were letting in two a game. So it was, and he was an instant success and very much already provided value for the 55,000. Um, may I keep, I know I've been blabbing for a long, long time, but may I explain how he got back the money for that? Because United still weren't money bags. You know, they couldn't just pay yeah. 55,000. Can I explain to our um, uh, followers how? Yeah, of course. How he raised the money? Well, this was extraordinary because as you probably are aware from previous episodes, John Connelly from Burnley, who also cost about 55,000, was another great signing, helped them to win a league in 65. You know, was the final piece in the jigsaw. Uh, and John Connelly was not only a very, very good player, he was in the England World Cup, Cup squad, and uh, in fact was one of three um, Connelly, Styles, and Charlton, of course, the great Charlton by now, who were given a standing ovation at the first game of the season against West Brom. Um, so Connelly's stock was high, but and he'd won his place back from Jimmy Ryan, young Jimmy Ryan. And Jimmy Ryan was one of those who said, what a wonderful man Alex Stepney was, because whenever Jimmy Ryan got a game in John Connelly's shirt and played well, Connelly would put his arm around him and say, great, son, keep up the good work. You, you know, you're great doing this and maybe just, you know, do this a bit more. He was incredibly uh, unselfish uh, to the young man. So everybody liked John Connelly, and one day early in the season, um, Matt, Matt came in on a Friday. He was no longer uh, a tracksuit manager by, by now, but he would always be there on a Friday, the day before the big Saturday match. And usually to drop a player, you know, the what one of the players called the wiggly finger, you know, come over, how do you think you're playing, son? Yeah, I think you could do, I probably need a rest. Anyway, he didn't bother with this with John Connelly. He says, you're not playing tomorrow. And Connelly says, you're joking. And Matt said, I don't joke about these things. And Connelly, well, you know, people who listen to this podcast and watch it uh, don't like bad language, so I'll, I'll not repeat exactly. But he, he basically, he said to the great Matt Busby that you could put your Manchester United where the sun don't shine. And uh, he just went into the shower, got dressed, went home, told his wife that he's finished with Man United. And a couple of weeks later, in fact, days later, he was sold in typical Busby move. He wasn't sold to a competitor. He was sold to second division Blackburn Rovers. So he, was, he wouldn't play against United for £40,000. And that was the bulk of the Stepney money raised. There was another sale... Uh, later in the season, which produced, which balanced the books. And I can't remember quite who it was, but there was another. Willie Anderson. Oh, it was Willie Anderson. That's right, because John Aston was junior, was already emerging as a really good winger and, uh, you know, could play on one wing while Best played on the other. Jimmy Ryan hadn't convinced Busby at all to the same extent. But Willie, that was Willie Anderson who had been, it given good service, and in fact, this was reflected in a fee of £20,000 which Aston Villa paid for him. So there were the books balanced, as they always seem to have to be at Manchester United. Uh, anyway, that's enough 
for me blathering on, uh, Wayne, I'm sure all our um, listeners want to listen to you. So pick no, up no, the story. Yeah, yeah. yeah Stepney, you mentioned his, his transformational impact at the back. He certainly did. Um, we've talked about Harry Gregg in previous episodes. And, and like you, you quite rightly mentioned, he's the third world record fee. So if you've been following along on the podcast, you're like, well, we all know Harry Gregg is. Remember that Reg Allen was the first. He's Reg the- Allen from QPR. Yes, yes. Um, and of course, Alex Ferguson would break that record, the world record for a goalkeeper, many moons later um, for Fabian Bartes, I believe it was, at 7.8 million at the time. Mm-hmm. I think that quickly got obliterated when I think it was a Buffon who, who went to Juventus, I think, for, for around 30 yes. million. And that stood for a while before the fees went out of control. But yeah, you know, goalkeepers, goalkeepers then after Buffon really was the first goalkeeper superstar, wasn't he? And that, yeah, and, and, and they, they then became their value was properly recognized. I mean, when you when you think that the Peter Schmeichel came for 600,000 uh, pounds, uh, which just sort of serves to, to underline what a bargain that was, yeah. And, and to be fair, I mean, Busby obviously identified goalkeepers in a certain way and clearly with their importance in mind. And he'd obviously made this change with Harry Gregg and they'd obviously identified his style of play. And it was similar with Stepney in, in that, you know, obviously the biggest problem that Busby had, had with these other goalkeepers, even Gregg included, was the yeah. unreliability. And yeah. Stepney was a byword for consistency. Even or... though he was young, yeah. Yeah, that's mm. true. He... That's a point because at that time goalkeepers were not known for. They, they, everyone thought they don't really mature till they're about late twenties, early thirties. Greg by now was thirty-four, and as you've chronicled in previous episodes, um, shoulder and back injuries were always a, a problem. Harry was given uh, a free transfer and went to Stoke, but he didn't really play much there before retiring. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know his fee obviously didn't raise any any money, but uh, yes, a, a time of uh, gentle improvement rather than massive changes need, needed, uh, and and United's form reflected this, didn't it? Yeah, um, certainly. One one final note on Stanley before we move on. Going back to Greg, and we made that comparison before about Greg being a little bit like Peter Schmeichel. It kind mm. of follows that Stepney's a little bit like Van der Sar. He was unruffled. Yes, yes. Joined in the play as well, and he was included in attacking routines, which wasn't really common for goalkeepers then. There's a, a famous story that's going to come in the next episode about how Stepney got involved in attacking routines, but yeah. his composure had this instant settling effect as well. At the time when the... Well, you mentioned in previous episodes the entire formation structures were changing in teams now. Mm. Um, so it's a, a stronger four-man defence. Mm. And you're quite right. I mean, the, it was 4-1 where United had lost at Nottingham Forest and that five the five goals at Blackpool, which had mm. really... Um, well, another four. The four, actually, against Forest. Let, let's talk mm. about this one. Because yeah. we're talking about players moving out of the team. It appeared at this one... Forrest come to, or it was at the city ground, 4-1. Yeah. Johnny Carey in charge of Forrest. Mm-hmm. And it appeared that that would be the end of Shea Brennan because he was instant, he was the, the casualty of that. He was instantly dropped and Bobby Noble then came into the side and he, it was his position from that point. Um, well, Shea Brennan must have been up against Ian Story Moore, I would guess. And he was virtually unplayable. So Shea Brennan got shredded 
by Story Moore and was then dropped. Uh, presumably, Dunn moved to right back. Yeah. Into Brennan's shirt, and Noble, Noble came in at left back, and of course was instantly magnificent. Yeah, so Noble and Stepney in the defence added this assurance, this quality, and United's consistency picked up immediately. And they went on a great run just before Christmas. And then they, they lost a couple just before, but it's after the, the turn of the year, really, when United really click in. They, they're unbeaten at home all season. A, a quick mention on the Old Trafford uh, form as well, just because the this season there's a post war attendance record. We've been tracking them throughout the, 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 the episodes. But with the new stand where it is and, you know, the, the attendance, the capacity raised, um, United attracted, I think, before Christmas that a million people had watched United in league football. And by April, the million mark was it at Old Trafford alone, which shows you how how, um, how intrigued the, the public were to watch this United team. Yeah. Jeffrey Green, the, the great writer, described Old Trafford as a palace amongst English club grounds. Yeah. There was a new training, indoor training facility at the cliff as well. So United were putting all this money in. We already talked about what they were doing at Old Trafford in previous episodes. But they, they seem to be, um, it's coincidental, surely, because every team doesn't want to lose at home. But mm. there would seem to be an extra sense of pride around Old Trafford. They, they didn't want to lose games there. And, and yeah. that was reflected in the fact. Also, there was a, a thing in, uh, in fact, I'm quite right. I think it was earlier this season because United had been dropping a lot of games away from home. Busby changed the philosophy a little bit. What you you know the keep it tight yeah. kind of thing that we'd heard at Benfica. Was it so for the first fifteen minutes of games? He was telling Aston and Best to just sit back a little bit, sit compact, yeah, yeah. take the defense, and then go yeah. go out and attack if you if you like. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. So they, it was a settled team. It was a settled team at last, and and uh, and a solid team. There, there was solidity, and and yes, Stepney was definitely, uh, definitely one of those, uh, definitely a, a major factor in that. Um, sorry, I'm just turning my phone off because it's doing that an irritating blink. Uh, but um, what I was just going to say when you talked about those crowd figures, and and you talked also about the in, uh, Jeffrey Green's allusion to the increasing splendour of the stadium. Definitely, the cantilever stand was a key in that. This was... Everybody talks about 58, 68, and even 48 as sort of defining years in Manchester United's history. 66-7, in my opinion, would could, should be looked back at as the year when Manchester United became different. Now... At the moment, you know, we're, we're used to the idea over the last 25, 30 years of Manchester United being one of those clubs with a magical quality, actually more than 30 years, a half a century. But it wasn't, it wasn't a God-given right. And it was, here are the factors. The cantilever stand, which made, you sort of fulfilled a little bit of Busby's vision inspired by his visits to the Bernabeu with the Busby Babes. And this fantastic stadium, white against the blue of the sky and all of this. And he thought he'd build a little of this in his paradise of Manchester, despite the smog. And 
the, the cantilever stand in the World Cup, this is World Cup, the emergence of Bobby Charlton is probably the most, possibly the most famous player in the world during the World Cup. And he was playing for Manchester United. He was, I think, about to get the Ballon d'Or, but yeah. Law and Best were also to get the Ballon d'Or around this time. So Manchester United had the, the glamour of three of the greatest players in the world and the most exciting as well. The stadium befitted uh, such a, a, a galaxy of stars. It was the middle of the 60s. What were they called? The swinging 60s. Their 60s didn't swing for everybody. But Manchester United had caught that mood, much as Oasis caught Cool Britannia many years later. So Manchester United were became different. Don't forget that when Busby took over, and long after Busby had taken over and made Manchester United one of the clubs in England, they could regularly get beaten at the gate by Newcastle, by Tottenham, yeah. by Arsenal once or twice, and by Liverpool on occasion. But this was the season, the average crowd was give or take 54,000, which was not far off capacity. So the gates, suddenly in this year, the gates no longer swung. Do you remember when the last episode we talked about only 23,000 at one game? Yeah. was the end of the season when the title campaign had sort of waned a little. And that was no longer happening. This fortress old Trafford, this fortress isn't almost doesn't fully tell the story because it was some thing that not only, I mean, Anfield was a fortress for Liverpool around that time as well, but Old Trafford was the kind of, and I wonder if it was when they, when football tourism first started, because I, I wasn't a Manchester United fan, but I lived in Manchester and I would go to Old Trafford and see these three great players. Sorry, Paddy Crary, three and a half great players. <laughs> And uh, um, and it was exciting. It was show business. It was part of the swinging sixties, yeah. um, and and results came along with it. So although people might say that Manchester United became Manchester United as we know it today, in nineteen sixty eight, in our next episode. I think this was six, this post World Cup season yeah. was the one where Manchester United became Manchester United. It's they so defined themselves as different. It's so interesting because you mentioned the cocktail of basically the perfect storm. All those ingredients come in, and you know, for someone like my generation, I grew up, and everything you mentioned there, I could um, reference as the Cantona effect yeah. as well. You had yes. Guy. Italia 90, um, the Premier League coming in and, yes. and Cantona coming into United just at the point where they were coming in. So you've got the best element, you know, the fact that soccer's seen by a lot more people. And mm -hmm. you know, it's crazy that football, with all its unpredictability, mm. so cyclical sometimes. Um, yeah. and United have followed um, similar cycles in, in good and bad ways. Um, yes. Yeah, they, they, 
the second half of this season, they really kick in. They're playing great football. They, they've tightened that away form up, so they're getting a lot of draws on the road. But this is a point, a game, where, again, it's two points for a win. So when they're picking up these points, they're seen as good results, and they're winning at home all the time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned, um, before we came on air, you were mentioning a goal against Nottingham Forest in February, which... Um, was pretty special. They got their own back on Nottingham Forest in spectacular fashion, didn't they? Yes, it was, as you say, Forest under Johnny Carey, uh, Busby's first great captain, the captain of the 48 cup winning team and a man for whom Busby had huge respect, a man who was a, a little bit like Busby himself um, in, 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 his, in, in terms of dignity. Anyway, he was not not just dignified, but extremely good at building a football team. And he finally proved this at Nottingham Forest with this very good side, who were definitely a serious challenger for the title, uh, along with United when they came to Old Trafford. It was billed as the title decider. I remember going to it as a young man. What was it? 1966, 7, so it was about 20, yeah, just... 19 going on 20. I uh, remember going to this match and Old Trafford was certainly packed for this one. You know, you wouldn't, you couldn't get a, couldn't get even a, a standing place. And um, it was a very good, very good Forest team. We, we've mentioned Ian Story Moore, who all Manchester United fans with any sense of history will know uh, was, was a very good player, unfortunately, who was unable to fulfill fully his, his massive potential at Old Trafford due to injury in a later um, in a later era. But it, there were other very good players. There's a wonderful, we talk about the dignity of Johnny Carey, a, a very dignified centre-half, Scottish centre-half called Bobby McKinley. There were Henry Newton and Terry Hennessy alongside him. Um, John Barnwell, a creative force. So it was a, it was a good side and it came to Old Trafford and the, it was nil-nil. It was a tight game. Both teams playing to their potential until the 85th minute. And Dennis Law, it, it was obviously going to take something special to settle this match. And Dennis Law was something special. Overhead kick from a corner past the uh, Forest goalkeeper, Peter Grummet. And uh, United had sneaked 1-0, the title decider. Uh, and from then on, they became, um, they became favourites to do it this time. Yeah, what we were referencing and doing these comparisons to teams of different eras in United history, one thing um, strikes me about this team because they've developed a metronomic consistency. They've got Creran, yes. Stepney, Folks, and then they were not relying, but they because they they could rely on it. The, the individual brilliance of a best or a low, like you mentioned, or Charlton. Yeah. It's a very strong... Um, reference that you could make a comparison to the 2019, team, you know, which had this great consistency around an experience, but mm-hmm. then had Rooney, Ronaldo, and Tevez who could do something magical, and that's exactly what United had. It's, it's, a, it's a very good comparison, that actually, um, because uh, you know, and the Forest game was a very good example of it, because you know, when you need what what the what. Uh, in a lot of European countries, the player who makes the difference, you know. Well, United had three yeah. of those, and uh, and 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 Law won, uh, you know, pulled out something special to win that one. 
However, when I said, and then I sort of implied they then were, went on to win the league, but it wasn't exactly quite like that because a week later, um, Norwich came to Old Trafford in the cup. I think it was only a week later, and you'll yep. correct me if I'm wrong. And Norwich uh, were a, a good team, a second division team, but, you know, doing well and particularly good in the cup, as Old Trafford found out to its cost. Final score, Manchester United 1, Norwich City 2. And it was it was a huge shock because United had just apparently proved themselves the best team in the country. And here was a second division team beating them. Um, so that, that mean it added to Norwich's reputation as cup uh, as, as cup shockers, basically. You know, it wasn't the only time they did well. Um, but looking back on it, I don't think it did United's league campaign any harm, not mm. to have the not to have the beautiful distraction of the FA Cup. No, absolutely. And so the the potential injuries that you pick up on a cup run like that yeah. Uh, yeah. weren't really impacted. But United did pick up a couple of significant yeah, injuries. very a significant. Month, a month after the the Norwich defeat to the day. They welcomed Leicester to Old Trafford. Um, David Hurd scores after two minutes. Um, it's a magnificent moment, but disaster strikes at the same time because in, in scoring the goal, he breaks his leg. And really, from that moment on, his, um, his career is absolutely... Well, definitely United. It's, it's mm. an underrated career as we've talked it, about. It, it was. I mean, we talked about it in the previous episode, uh, in the 65-6 episode. I think we tried to... Uh, we, we dwelt on David Hurd's career and, and tried to do him a, a semblance of justice. Um, but yes, uh, as, as you say, he was still around, still with almost an inevitability scoring goals when the broken leg really uh, proved uh, the end. How I, I, I think he would already be in his early 30s by then, would he? About 31? Yeah, 32. I think he 32. Was, yeah. So, you know, luckily, you know, he'd had the best, um, you know, and he, you know, those uh, superb scoring figures at Arsenal and at, and at Old Trafford would, would be in history forever. Um, but the, it, the, his injury did, I think, give opportunities to um, a man we've spoke to, spoken about before, the endlessly uh, versatile David Sadler, who quietly could play, could still play centre forward. And I think after David Hayard's injury, uh, although he'd been playing quite a few games in defence, um, John, uh, John Sadler. The, the late John Sadler was a columnist on The Sun, wrote beautifully about football. Uh, David Sadler um, also um, filled in usefully at centre forward. Yeah, he did. And to be fair, I think that the whispers of that have been happening earlier in the season. Sadler had been playing at centre forward and heard had been moving to the inside left, as um, columnists are still describing it. As uh, mm. we'll talk about the formation changes in a bit. But yeah, he was still being described as an inside left, and with um, Aston yeah. playing on the outside left. Yeah. Um, there. But yeah, it, the move was happening anyway. But Hurd, yeah, as you mentioned, he was still scoring plenty of goals. He was um, still a threat, still massively underrated. And um, unfortunately, this would do for his Old Trafford career. He would still play football. He, I mean, he recovered to do quite well at Stoke, 
but obviously it was a devastating injury at precisely mm. the wrong time. Mm. Well, what was it? The other injury was just, as I recall, was just as significant. Um, that was in April. Yeah, it came along in April. That would be Bobby Noble. Yeah, yeah, he, he was injured in a car crash after United played at Sunderland. Uh, they drew nil nil at that point. On the verge of winning the title, Bobby Noble fully deserving of his medal since he came into the side. Mm. Um, but yeah, he suffered this car crash, and we we have talked up Bobby Noble, haven't we? We, we this was a guy yeah. who was going to be England international, possibly oh, yeah. United captain in the making, um, and all gone, all gone. Even more than David Erds, he's not going to play again. I, mean, I think there was an attempt at a comeback in the reserve team. Right, he, he tried to come back and. And playing the juniors um, to get his match fitness up, but he wasn't yeah. the same. And um, yeah, um, a tragic end to a, a fantastic career. And United would suffer another player in maybe five or six years who would, who would also suffer with a car crash. And um, when we talk about how well that player did come, to come back and, and recover and play hundreds of times for United, it goes to show just how we can't take it for granted, considering. Mm. What happened to Bobby Noble? Absolutely tragic, um, his career. Over at the end of the season, but he would get that medal and it was kind of inevitable the way that United clicked into gear. Right yes. around the end of March, George Best just decided, you know what, I'm going to probably win this title by myself. <laughs> Even though it was there, you know, United were going to win the title, but Best thought I'll put a little bit of razzle-dazzle on it and he, some of his performances were incredible in, in the mm. Um, scoring against Fulham, against West Ham, um, against Aston Villa in this pivotal game, which basically tipped the scales in United' favour. To yeah. basically say that when they went to West Ham in the penultimate game, the final away game, they could yeah. effectively afford to draw, as they had done all the previous away games after Christmas. Yeah. Um, they, they developed this sort of keep it tight, get the point, and, and go home. But they decided at Upton Park, Paddy, that they were, they were going to do something a little bit different. Yes, this was one of the defining <clears throat> performances, not only of the season, but of the era. Uh, not wholly in a good way, but I'll come on to that later. But on the field, it was magnificent, swashbuckling, swaggering. And that's just the S's, you know. Um, they went to Upton Park. They won 6-1. Each of the three great Blalor Best and Charlton scored at least one goal. Wayne, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but... Uh, funnily enough, this morning before we did the recording, I was speaking to a friend of mine who remembers that game and and uh, and, and and remembers the, the the sheer swagger and style of, of of Manchester United and how this performance epitomised it. The ground was overflowing, but um, not wholly with people who were behaving at their best. There was hooliganism, I'm afraid, at this. We've referred to it. The swinging sixties, along with uh, glamour and, and, and England winning the World Cup and all that, uh, also saw uh, the rise of, of hooliganism, and uh, there was plenty of it at West Ham. Um, and uh, so, you know, for Busby and and for everybody concerned with Man United's reputation, I'm not saying that it was only Man United players at fault. Uh, Supporters at fault, um, but uh, the, the you know it, Busby, who was very conscious of the club's image, would not have been pleased that Manchester United were only at the forefront of, of the style 
and and the um, achievement of English football, but also I'm afraid doing the part for the um, the sort of traducing of the game's reputation off the field. Um, but you know, apart from that, everything was great. Um, Busby by now was on a ten-year contract, and he was on. Um, a terrific salary of £10,000 a year plus bonuses, which, given the way the team kept winning, were, were more, more at least doubling that £10,000. Uh, but he deserved it. You look at Old Trafford, 54000 you know, every week. Um, the, the, the beauty of the ground, the, the fact that their books had been balanced um, while this incredibly sexy team had been built. Um, you have to say, um, you know, that he was worth every penny um, of his salary. Uh, he also, I, I, I don't want to make this all about Matt Busby, but he, he also had a, a good moment that was nothing to do with Manchester United uh, towards the end of the season, because those who followed uh, this series right from the start will know that Busby's boyhood was spent supporting Celtic. Celtic, meanwhile, had had a great season, not only winning the Scottish League, but marching through Europe in a most wonderful style uh, under Jock Steen, a style that, 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 that Matt, given his attacking, uh, his love of attacking, entertaining football would have approved of. And Celtic found themselves the first British team in to reach a European Cup final, achieving this ambition that had thus far eluded Matt Busby, possibly because of the Munich disaster, which was sad to say, and uh, the, the missing, the fact that we didn't mention when we talked about all the things that went into the making of Manchester United as something different from even the best football clubs. And, Anyway, the Celtic went to uh, Lisbon for the European Cup final to play Inter and went behind and beat them 2-1. By now the season was over, Manchester United were actually on a plane going on tour to America when this happened, which meant that another Celtic supporter, an even more rabid Celtic supporter, Paddy Creran, was unable to follow the match. Uh, but Celtic became the first British team to win the European Cup, but who would be the first English team to win it? Well, we'll have to wait and see. We will indeed. Um, yeah, you mentioned the West Ham game. Um, the first half performance in particular for United was absolutely magnificent. Uh, they scored four in the first 25 minutes. I'm going to read um, a little bit of a passage from Joe Hume, who was the reporter for the people. Uh -huh. He said, Matt Busby and his magnificent 11 swept back into Europe on a wave of emotion and the most devastating spells of soccer magic I have seen in 44 years in the game. If I carry on for another 44 years, I can't hope to see anything better than the first 25 minutes, which produced four United goals. George Best was a genius. The goal was reported, Best's goal was reported to be one where um, Styles had played in the ball and he juggled the ball between his feet and then and then lashed it in, which sounds like a George Best thing to do. Yeah, yeah. But you, you're quite right. I mean, at the time... There's this sort of contrasting picture of this is a complete United as a club in, in Busby's entire vision from what he 
envisaged back over 20 years earlier. This this is a club built by Matt Busby, even without the European glamour. Everything that was about United had a touch of Busby on it. Um, yeah. In, in a completely positive way. Um, mm. And the the only drawback was at the time, the, the, the club was still getting a little bit of negative press. Uh, again, perhaps tying into this growing feeling of... Um, conflict in the game and you know United's on pitch the, the sort of Scottish streak which ran through them yeah uh, also ran red you know low Creran Fitzpatrick a lot of combustious uh, combustible yeah. players in there and yeah. there was some reports you know that they weren't a very likable United team basically even though they had all this magic and and the flair they got Bobby Charlton the gentleman of football and, and yeah. George Best with all the skill that he's got but yeah. there was still this sort of feeling that, you know, United were contributing to the off-pitch problems by causing a lot of flare-ups on the pitch as well, you know what I mean, getting a little bit around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a certain love-hate relationship that the general public had with Manchester United, and, and of course, which persists, in fact, perhaps was exacerbated by the Ferguson era, but that's for another episode, many, many uh, weeks in the future, I think. Um, 60,000, 61,000 turn up to the final home game to see the celebrations. I'll put a few pictures on the screen. The first is of the West Ham celebrations, all the mm. players in their white kits. You, If you're watching on the video, you'll see that a couple of players have got different shirts because United decided to have a, a V-neck shirt, but some players still had the round necks. Um, mm. I think George changed his at half-time. He, he wore a different one. Uh, yeah. And Dennis did as well. So, yeah, you can see the players are celebrating with a glass. I wonder if George is still on yeah. the lemonade, even though yeah, he doesn't, yeah. doesn't seem to have a glass at all in this picture. No, he doesn't. David, uh, for those who are listening um, on audio only, I'll just describe the scene. Of course, they're all grinning. They've just won the title, and most of them have got uh, glasses of champagne in their, in their hands. George has his arm around his friend and Flatmate uh, David Sadler, who David's got a glass, but George hasn't. Maybe he's yeah. finished his already. But as you say, he preferred lemonade in those days. On the far right of the picture is Bobby Charlton already with a comb over, I notice. And uh, next to him is is Nobby Styles, whose forehead also uh, appears uh, large and lacking in hair at this stage, although his comb over is much more convincing than Bobby's. Uh, Paddy Creran grinning widely, uh, the understated Tony Dunn with a with a grin too. Bill Fulks, um, who's next to Bill Wayne? Who's that chap? Oh, that's back to Shea Brennan, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John Aston and uh, and of course the irrepressible Dennis Law with the the widest grin of all. Yeah. So it's a, um, a lovely a lovely picture. Obviously, we need to show some of Sir Matt. So, we'll, we'll, some images from the Stoke game. First of all, ah uh, yes, and um, um, this is one of it's in colour actually. This one of the Stoke game, which was a a dull nil nil, but the the trophy was presented, and there the the players are happy for Matt to be brandishing it, and and they are walking at his side uh, in Manchester United red. With red socks and oh wait a minute, I'm stealing your line, Matt um, Wayne, because you always describe the strip at the end of each episode. <laughs> Sorry about that, but interesting to to see that uh, uh, not a logo in sight. 
lovely, lovely plain strip that. Not a logo on it at all. Matt in a suit, collar and tie, uh, looking immaculate as ever. But uh, Old Trafford already, you see, lucky behind you can see the cantilever stand, not a stanchion in sight. This is the, now we, we you know, we, we're sort of shocked if we go to old grounds which have um, obstructed views like Fulham, where, where I go quite a lot. Uh, but in those days, to see a stand with uninterrupted views and no pillars uh, was was state of the art. Yeah, um, as was the goalkeeper that United have. Let's go through the squad statistics very quickly. Alex Stedney, the goalkeeper this season um, in, mm -hmm. in Southside, um, making the first 37 of his 539 appearances for the club, 35 of those were in the league. Um, and your eyes are not deceiving you. He did score two goals, although we'll come on to that in, in later episodes. Um, Harry Gregg made two appearances, both of those in league. David Gaskell made five appearances in the league. And Pat Dunn's single appearance was in the League Cup against Blackpool, as Paddy mentioned earlier. So that's the goalkeeper situation. I'll put up a squad picture for the um, for the duration of the squad statistics. Another image of Sir Matt celebrating and looking very, very joyous indeed. Mm. Um, fullbacks this season. Noel Campbell made four appearances in the league. Those were his four in all competitions. Shea Brennan, as we mentioned, games were a little bit hard to come by until... Uh, Bobby Noble's misfortune. He made 17 appearances in the in all competitions. 16 of those were in the league. Tony Dunn, of course, played just about every minute that he could. 43 appearances in all competitions. 40 of those were in the league. Bobby Noble, 31 appearances in all competitions. 29 in the league before tragic drug for him. Paddy Perrin in the half-back line at the defensive midfield. Gowns the tactics in the moment of 42 appearances in all competitions, three goals, 39 in the league, and three all three goals in the league. Bill Folks, the half-back, the centre-back, of course, four goals in 35 appearances, four in 33 in the league. John Fitzpatrick, three single league appearances. Nobby Styles, three goals in 40 in all competitions, three in 37 in the league. Again, he's a half-back, but we'll talk about his actual position in a moment. Willie Anderson, one substitute appearance before um, he was sold. John Canelli, seven appearances in all competitions, two goals, six in six appearances in the league before he was sold. Jimmy Ryan, five appearances and, and a substitute appearance in the league. So the four and one in, in the league before um, he found it difficult to enter side, but he was the sort of backup winger for George Best, who didn't need backup because this season is ultra-reliable, ultra playing in every single game, 45 in all competitions. United's top appearance maker, George Best, you wouldn't credit it compared to what's about to follow in, in um, following episodes. Um, 10 goals, 10 in 42 in the league. Bobby Charlton, 12 goals in 42 in the league, 44 appearances in all competitions. John Aston on the left wing, five goals in 31 games. Uh, 30 of those games were in the league, and all five goals were in the league as well. David Hurd, before his injury, scored 18 goals in 31 competitions, scored in every competition for United this season, as you would expect of someone with that relentless consistency, 16 in 28 in the league before he, obviously, his career was um, lost at United due to that injury. 
David Sadler made 39 appearances in all competitions, 36 in the league, and scored five league goals. This leaves us with the two strikers, oh, well, the, the one strikers that have already gone over Dennis, uh, David Hurd's record. We've got Dennis Law, top goal scorer this season, 25 goals in 38 games, 23 in 36 in, in the league. Um, you mentioned the colours. Um, they are red, white and red. Oh, sepia, white and sepia, if you're looking on the... Uh, <laughs> um, all white of the strip. Um, sometimes wore red socks as well. And the away kit was a blue shirt with white shorts and socks. Average attendance this season, Old Trafford up by 13,000 to 54,726. Already mentioned Dennis Lowe was the top goal scorer. We'll just run through the tactics very quickly. I've moved it this time to a 4 2 4, which I think we were graduating to anyway, um, Paddy. And mm. this is probably more accurate what you would have expected to see of this United team this season. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, Styles in the back line, accompanying folks and there. Noble at left back, done at right back until Brennan came back into the side later on. Kerrin yeah. would be in the midfield too, but you would have Sadler dropping back, you would have Dennis Lowe dropping back. Um, Jeffrey Green at one point referred to this as a 4-3-3. And yeah. he placed yeah. in the three in midfield, which is interesting. Um, but obviously, we, we've, talk, we've both talked about Dennis Law in the past that he saw himself as a box-to-box -box midfielder anyway. So, um, yes. Yeah, yeah, he's a, a striker for, for the narrative purposes here. And yeah. Jonathan, a, a predominantly outside left-sided player. Um, yeah. George Best played everywhere. <laughs> David yeah. Sadler would drop back into the defence as well. Very, very... You would almost... You wouldn't call them the Arlen Globe Trotters the way that they played, but the way it's so multifunctional, it seems so mm. ahead of its time. You know, David Sadler could move back into defence. Styles yeah. could move forward into midfield. Charlton could yeah. move into... You'd, you would kill to see a team as multifunctional as this today, wouldn't you, really? You yeah. Players and I, I, they, they could... Play this position. These this formation or this collection of players could play in a multitude of different ways. Yeah. Yes. No, that you're quite right. And I, you know, even you you could, you know, if you talk about uh the pointers towards the future of tactics, I mean you've already alluded to it, but Stepney saw himself, you know, as not just someone who, who would save but who would already have his mind on the next thing. You know, do I hurl it out to Tony Dunn, you know, or Bobby Noble, you know, that he already, he was always alert to the attacking possibilities. So, yes, you're quite right. The, the, the thing, of course, had evolved in, 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 into a, a, the back four was now the de default uh, defensive formation. Uh, it, it had been established for a couple of years. England, of course, played with a back four with, with more... Um, wow, you talk about what would you want? What would you want for a a, a, um, a playmaking defender like Bobby Moore now? I don't know, 300 million. Um, I mean, uh, this Moore and Jack Charlton were, were, were very much a pair, so um, the days of, of three at the back were at least temporarily over. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, that's Man United's formation now. Yeah, um, and they would look at 
look at the key results. Um, six one at West Ham. Yeah. Uh, the key result. United were unbeaten in sixty seven in the league, so they made a really strong end to the season. But the West Ham one is one of those because of all the Trinity yeah. were on the score sheet because of Absolutely. the fashion in which they won. Um, yeah. And when they came back from that, they uh, as you you've already uh, mentioned the the home match, the sort of meaningless from Man United point of view, nil nil draw with Stoke where the trophy was presented. We've shown the pictures of that. Um, in his press conference, Matt Busby announced that although the, you know, obviously it was important to try and retain the title next season, he added very firmly that he wanted to have a real go at the European Cup in the, the following season, which was to be 1967-68. But before then, Manchester United went on the tour that I've just mentioned, you know, uh, having uh, as, as they flew across the Atlantic while Celtic um, with Billy McNeil and Jimmy Johnston from Matt Busby's home village, uh, well, home area anyway. Um, they arrived in America for a long, long tour and during it, this Manchester United who had announced how desperate they were to, to make a real go at winning the European Cup. They came up against a Portuguese team called Benfica in a friendly <laughs> in Los Angeles and were beaten by them 3-1. So mm, that was going to be a tough nut to crack if uh, if Manchester United were to have a real go at the European Cup. But anyway, we'll see what happens. Who knows? <laughs> Elsewhere in football, uh, Spurs won the FA Cup, QPR won the League Cup, and as you already mentioned, Celtic there won the European Cup, became the first British team to, to win it. Um, one final note of housekeeping. We all talked about the kits. As always, we do the United review, and we have finally made progress on the handshake. Mm. We are oh! have... <laughs> if you're looking um, on the video, you can see it. If you're listening on the audio, now it's a right-handed handshake, very clearly. You see, that didn't hurt, did it? It's right hand on right hand, which is is great. It's been left, right on left, wasn't it? Um, but now they've changed it to right hand on right hand, and well, it's it still looks great and uh, still only sixpence. And yeah. do you know how much uh, sixpence? Do you know how much sixpence is? I don't. Have you got the the currency? Two and a half pence. Two and a half pence for the, for the official program with uh, a proper handshake on the front. So that, I can't beat that for value, can you? Even if the program that we're showing is Saturday, April 1st, April Fool. Um, but uh, what was the score of that game? The home game against West Ham? 3-0. Best, Low and Charlton on the score sheet. There you are. Marvellous. What a way... What a way to finish our review of uh, the 66-7 season. Um, yeah, in typical fashion. Um, yeah, If you're watching the video, please give us a like and subscribe. Join in the conversation in the comment section. If you're listening back on the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review of the platform you're listening on. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We will be back next time. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. 
And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! No, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver-assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.